Welcome to Live Well, Be Well, a show to help high performers improve their health and well-being. In a world where the spotlight can elevate and destroy, navigating fame and success from a young age presents a journey filled with unique challenges. Yet our guest today has managed to stay grounded and true to himself, even in the whirlwind of his remarkable career. Reggie Yates, a household name for an entire generation, landed his first TV role at the tender age of eight. Since then, his career has thrived for over three decades, overcoming barriers and breaking stereotypes associated with his background. He's hosted the iconic Radio One chart show, entertained audiences on live TV and ventured into the world of documentary filmmaking, earning critical acclaim for his fearless exploration of political extremism. Now, as he embarks on a new adventure in film directing, Reggie joins us for the first episode of our new series, opening up about the secrets to remaining authentic in the limelight and how he overcame the challenges of being a young black man from a working class background. He shares insights on the vital role of strong friendships, his decision to abstain from alcohol, and the transformative power of therapy in his life. I know you've had a huge amount of success, basically over 30 years nearly, 30 years this year maybe, and you've had huge recognition, huge accolades, but I was really curious to kind of start our conversation on what success means to you beyond those traditional measures of fame, wealth and social status, which you've encountered. Yeah, and encountered is definitely the right word because I wouldn't define myself as any of those things. Um, I started out uh, at a junior, well, at a, um, a local community drama group called Anna Share. And above the door at Anna Share, there was a, 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 like a, a banner that she had written, uh, which said, there is no such thing as star or fame. And from the age of eight or nine years old, that was something that was certainly in my subconscious. And, and that's something that have ne has never really been a driver nor defined me. Mm. And um, I, today, after having been in television for so many years and now starting my journey in film, um, I recognize and respect the patterns of fame mm -hmm. where um, people are in and then they're out. Uh, if you're young and you taste fame uh, quite early, it's very easy to be a young person in that scenario and as a result, totally neglect the, the reality that you are the flavour of the month and flavours change. Yeah, <laughs> trends come and, in and um, they go. Trends come in and they go. Uh, mm -hmm. So for me, I'll tell you what's, what's been very interesting. This might be something we get into, but as a 39, nearly 40-year-old single guy, um, I'm talking a lot with friends and family about, you know, finding a wife, having a child and all these things that um, may or may not be a million miles away from me. And um, when talking about uh, a dream partner, the way that I boiled it down when I was chatting with a couple of friends the other day was finding someone that is a successful human being. And what I mean by that was, and this is the way I define it, a self-actualized person. Um, and I, I say that because I think success is self-actualization. Mm -hmm. I think it's recognizing all the things that you want to be and making that happen. And that's not uh, about the superficial. That's not about the physique. That is not about uh, the bank balance. That is 1 million percent about uh, who people see you as being. 
not just mm -hmm. who you see yourself as being. Uh, as someone who spent so many years on camera, the distance between who you are versus the way the world sees you is something that always fascinated me. And moving from entertainment to documentary and now uh, actually telling my own stories, this idea of, um, of discussing the things that matter to me, but only because I recognize my flaws and I know who I am for better and for worse. And there are things that I still have a lot of work to do on. Um, that for me is the journey to self-actualization. So in a professional capacity, I'm certainly not in my mind anyway, a successful person. I've done things and I've done well, but I'm not a success as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I, I, I've tasted success, but the version of success that I chase today, I, I definitely haven't sampled as yet. But in terms of being self-actualized, I'm well on my way to it. It was interesting because I was reading your book or actually, yeah. I was listening to your book because I'm incredibly dyslexic on Audible. Um, and even just as you're saying this, even the title Unseen was was impactful to me, um, even as I was listening to the beginning of your book. And, you know, there was there was there's two things where you said difference is good and authenticity is invaluable, which I feel resonates with so much around you saying, yeah. you know, I want to be known for who I am, not the personality that I kind of was at the beginning of my career. And mm -hmm. I want to go into that a bit more, but part of your book really kind of resonated with, you know, being seen, being heard, being understood. And there was a passage in your book, it was quite a small passage, but I remember listening to it and pausing it and rewinding it because for my years within the modeling career, I had a lot of friends, dear friends, um, that would always have to bring their own makeup, their own hair onto set because they never had the shades that were right for them. And it caused me a huge, deep amount of upset for a very good reason. And you wrote in your book that you talk about a makeup artist applying a two shades too light for you. And I think for someone who had grown up with so many friends in this industry, never felt seen, never felt heard. And it's something that we bring to the forefront at the Be Well. Um, why did you find that so important to write in, especially obviously as a kind of a black male? I feel that is something that is quite a rarity to kind of read because not many people have that time in a makeup chair and have that experience like you did. Mm. Yeah, it, it, it was a, a moment and uh, I, I, I don't say this as a, a one off. It was certainly mm. something that I experienced lots as a young actor more than someone who was presenting. Um, it was a rarity to have a, uh, a, a person of color in the makeup uh, room. Uh, and the reason that that was the issue was this, this, this un level of understanding. And um, uh, for a long time in my teens, I had braids, I had um, cameras and um, uh, I was hosting children's television, these camera and, you know, I had like a, a horrible, fluffy, uneven moustache because I was a child <laughs> <laughs> who desperately wanted to be seen as someone a little bit older than they were. And um, it was really interesting because things just got a lot easier when I had braids because I turn up done and they didn't yeah. need to touch my hair. And you could see the relief on a makeup artist's face, particularly when it came to continuity, if you were on a drama where, you know, you just get your, because I'm, I'm a massive tart, I'd get my hair done. I think, uh, well, at the moment I get my hair cut once a week, but when I had braids, I was getting it done maybe twice a month. So it always looked fresh and it always looked the same. Mm -hmm. And it was just a relief for the makeup artist because they didn't need to do anything in terms of the continuity. And the makeup was a whole other thing. And, you know, without harping on about my own experiences, 
I know that I'm not the only person that went through it. And it's something that is only starting to change now. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, when you've got someone as successful as Pat McGrath out there, who's not just a success, but also advocating for change, um, the power of her voice uh, is essential. So, uh, yeah, I I think being in the chair now as a a director and a writer and a producer, I'm able to employ people Mm -hmm. and ensure that um, my sets feel like the sets that I wished I was on as a kid. Mm. So to ensure that there are um, people that understand the uh, the skin tones uh, and, and the way to light certain skin uh, mm-hmm. and also the way to make up certain skin or treat certain hair or the importance of having an actual Afro hair barber on set twice a week if we want to maintain continuity. We can't have a fresh haircut mm-hmm. on Monday and expect it to look the same the following Monday. And it needs to be the same scene. Like mm-hmm. it, we as black people, we see that and we go, oh my God, how did no one spot that? That's ridiculous. Mm. So yeah, I, I think what's what's been very valuable to me is to go from somebody who had a series of frustrations to writing about them in a book to now uh, uh, empowering other people and also being uh, somebody that ensures that there is a level of change when it comes mm. to the workplace. I know that you've obviously just released Pirates, um, which is probably where you really kind of like shone in that area of this. But I'd love to kind of know your journey of like how you started at the age of eight to how it feels now and that journey of what you kind of had to encounter and how you were one of the kind of first to, to be on our screens and resonate and span such a long career in this and how much has changed and how much still needs to change. I'd love to kind of hear from your from your aspect on yeah. this? Uh, well, the answer to that is a TED talk in itself. But this, the short uh, answer <laughs> is much like any other child of any other race, you're not aware of your race until uh, the world ensures that you are. And uh, I'm sure a lot of uh, a lot of your listeners have heard about the talk uh, and particularly after 2020, it was a conversation that a lot of people heard for the first time. And that is uh, a black parent arming their children around the ages of six or seven about the way in which the world will treat them. And from that age, you recognize that things aren't going to be the same for you and your white equivalent. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just becomes a part of your upbringing and a part of your life, how you navigate um, the work environment, social spaces, authority, uh, from teachers all the way to police. Mm-hmm. These are all things that you're acutely aware of when you're still watching cartoons and eating cereal. So uh, taking that into the workplace for me was no different to how it was a part of my life. And it's not by any means a sub story or something that I think uh, makes me unique because it's something that any person of color has experienced. And Mm -hmm. that armory that your parents give you, or that armor, shall I say, that your parents give you when you go into the wider world just unfortunately forces you to grow up sooner and forces you to be a little bit more aware and a little bit more adult about certain things, even if you are still incredibly immature about the rest of your life and the rest of the world. So uh, in in a work context, what I'm talking about suddenly becomes uh, undeniable because you walk on set and you're the only black person there, Mm -hmm. both in front of and behind camera. And then after a while, uh, you recognize that there is something consistent in the way in which the industry works. And that is that it's one, if not at most a handful of people uh, on set that don't look like one thing. And um, the roles that you start to get become uh, very much the same thing. 
And that is, you know, affable friend of the white lead, which mm -hmm. was something that I did for a very long time. Mm -hmm. um, but thankfully presenting and some of my TV parents, as I call them, my TV mum and dad, really encouraged me to be me. Mm -hmm. um, I think one of the things that really empowered me in becoming a presenter, I started at 11 years old presenting and was a regular uh, host on children's television from the age of 14. And being on national TV uh, and going from a drama gig to a presenting gig, where in one gig you're being told to become someone else and another gig you're being encouraged to not just, to not ignore the camera, to make it your best friend, but also to be yourself. Mm -hmm. and to 100% double down on what makes you you because that then becomes the thing that makes you stand out. And my TV dad, Billy McQueen, who I talk about all the time and he's someone who I love to pieces and is still a very major part of my life. He really encouraged me to be myself and really encouraged me to talk about my culture, to talk about my family uh, in a link and to pull that, uh, that stuff to the fore because he always sort of said that that would be the thing that would allow you to unlock the thing that makes you stand the test of time. And he's so right. Um, the reason that I believe you're even remotely interested in me today, <laughs> my, uh, my, my, my long annoying answers is that, um, I didn't do what a lot of my contemporaries did. And that was try and blend in. I made sure that I was me wherever I went, how I dressed and how I spoke and, and, and what references I used. If people didn't get it, I would do everything in my power to make sure that the people I was speaking to knew that I was talking to them. But it's amazing to have that insight at such a young age, to like hold true to that authenticity. Because I think, I think people struggle to be authentic with themselves on their own, let alone yeah. in the public eye or let alone on set when you actually feel quite different or like an mm. outlier. Like that is, it's an amazing sense of self to have that at such a young age. Yeah, I think the the because cool a lot thing of people wouldn't my... be like that. A lot of people would yeah. just morph. But but I think the cool thing about my my journey is that um, I was rewarded for it. Mm. So from quite a young age, the more me I was, the more work I'd get. The more people wouldn't be able to totally articulate their understanding of it, but they'd just say, do what you do. Um, so from the age of about 15, people were giving me scripts and going, please just make it your own. And that was the thing that, that became like a, a bit of a jokey catchphrase, particularly when I was doing Disney Club, it was make it your own. It was how do you take this thing that some random researcher has written and make it something that is specific to you, mm -hmm. that includes your humor, that includes your tone of phrase. You know, I'm, I'm a, a boy from an immigrant family uh, from a working class council estate in North London. And you learn so much about the world when you're looking at it through a lens uh, that my parents did. And as a result, you know, you're able to, to, to laugh at yourself, but also laugh at other people through uh, class, through race, through humor, through bias and all these different things. And when that is introduced to you as an idea from a young age, you don't even know you're doing it. Mm. It's amazing because I think you, that was part of you since you were eight when you went on to Desmond's. That was mm. kind of the first real acting role. From what I can hear you describing, it's not typical for somebody just to walk on set and be part of a the longest running channel Four sitcom so how did that kind of how did that entry come along how did you get into that channel Four sitcom were you always eager as a kid to be on tv to be an actor was that always something that was like innate within you because there's this there's this thing that i've been thinking about where 
there's a lot of out of sight, out of reach. So a lot of people don't believe, and I, and I have this conversation with my dad a lot, who um, grew up on a council estate and never felt that what he couldn't touch, it wasn't achievable to him. So he would never kind of go for these opportunities because he didn't feel that he could. He didn't know anyone around him who ever did that. And it, yeah. we've had this really interesting conversation. It's like out of sight, out of mind. You, if you can't touch it, then it's, it's not attainable to you. And hearing that you were on a TV show at eight, I'd love to know how that came about. Like, how did this happen? Thank you for listening to this episode so far. I want to quickly tell you about my sponsor, Arena Flowers, who I personally reached out to to sponsor this show, as I've been a loyal customer of theirs for two years, and I love everything about them. If you follow me, you'll see Arena Flowers are always around my house and they really brighten up my day. For me, a vital pillar of my self-care routine is self-love and having flowers around my house is so important for me to achieve that. If you're watching the video version of this episode, you can see spring has well and truly arrived at my house. But what sets them apart from the rest? Arena Flowers are the UK's number one ethical florist. All their bouquets are hand-tied and delivered in fully recyclable or compostable packaging and free from single-use plastics. Plus, their flowers are sourced from fair trade certified farms. So if you're ready to put a smile on someone's face and positively impact the planet at the same time, download their app now and enjoy free delivery plus 20% off your first purchase. And if it's a last minute present, make sure you order before 9pm for next day delivery. And of course, you're more than welcome to send me some. Um, well, you've touched on some really interesting points there because um, I never really subscribed to that um, idea. And I think it's weird because we're not talking about many years prior to me actually being uh, in in the business, as it were. But um, I believed anything was possible, like from the jump. And I was a massive show off as a kid. And uh, case in point, I um, I watched a couple of Bruce Lee movies with my uncle. And then I was teaching Kung Fu to the kids on my estate in my bedroom because I knew Kung Fu now. And that to me in a weird way, like looking back on it, says everything about the way I saw the world. Mm. It was, if I thought I could do something, I could do it. And today that is still how I feel. I'm an art school dropout. I went to Campbell Arts College and I dropped out to focus on television full time. And I'm a frustrated artist. I'm a frustrated photographer. Uh, I made music for uh, around a decade and was offered record deals that I walked away from. And I have such a, a connection to music. My father's a musician, but I've never released any music. But music has been a huge part of my life. And there are so many things that I've just sort of decided that I'm going to do. Mm. And somehow they end up happening because organically they're a passion that I can't get away from. So from teaching Kung Fu uh, as a child without anybody telling me to do it to sitting in my bedroom and deciding that I was a radio DJ, having two ghetto blasters and turning one up uh, to, until I found out, going through the radio, finding a song that I liked, letting it play, turning it down, doing a link on my own to no one, like just talking about the song and what I thought about it and then turning up the other ghetto blaster on another song that I liked and just sort of sitting there and playing radio DJ on my own, sat between these two ghetto blasters, turning them up and down, um, tells me so much more about 
my mentality to what is possible. So mm-hmm. to go from being this show off that had too much energy, my mum's friend telling my mum about this local community drama group, me going in the first couple of sessions of me being there, them going, all right, Big Ed, you're a massive show off. We're going to start sending you out for castings. Going to my first casting, which was Desmond's and getting it, there is maybe a, a, a naivety there, uh, a, an, an unfounded self-belief there. But at that point, in those incredibly formative moments of youth, I was told by the world and by the universe that if I thought I could do something, I could. Mm-hmm. And that weirdly is just part of my DNA today. You know, if I think I'm going to do something, I will, and I'll do it until it's done. Mm-hmm. And I'll, be, I'll willingly be rubbish at it until uh, I'm not anymore. And by the time I'm not rubbish at the thing, it becomes undeniable. And that's how I've attacked everything. And that is largely why I think in my career, I've had so many different corners of it. I did an interview with, I think it was a spectator years ago. And the headline after the interview was, does Reggie Yates have the weirdest career in television? And it's the most on the money um, interview I've I've ever, I've ever read back because it is flipping weird. Like, Mm Weird's good. You know, weird is fantastic. And weird's I great. embrace it. But I am, you know, I am, I think, one of the only people at the Broadcast Awards to be nominated in preschool with Rust the Mouse, uh, entertainment with Release the Hounds, and documentary with one of my films in the same year. And that largely speaks to my desire to do things that I care about and that I'm interested mm-hmm. in, that I think are fun as opposed to being told what the right path to walk is. Mm-hmm. There, there's like three things that come up, whereas one entrepreneur you were from such a young age, and you might not <laughs> you might not think of yourself as that, this is the first thing that came to my mind, sitting there right. making your own kind of DJ. Like that <laughs> yeah. is, it's like, I wanna do this, I'm gonna create it. Yeah, and it's yeah. that constant like inflection that you've done. I mean, it's that, they say it's weird, but it sounds to me like you've just constantly be reinventing to what you feel is your purpose at that time, what your intention is, listen to your gut. A lot of people really struggle to connect with that gut feeling or what they really want to be doing. And it feels like that's exactly what you've done, but without a thought process of that. There's no kind of being like, I can't. It's like, I can, and how can I? Yeah, I, I have to show a level of empathy to the people that don't, because you know, even though this was my journey, my sister who had the same upbringing and grew up in the same house and that went to the same drama group, her life and her journey doesn't mirror mine at all. Mm. Um, in, in Screen Right, we talk about story beats, right? There are beats to a story that can define a person. Mm-hmm. And uh, for uh, people in my life that have had a very similar set of situations, for whatever reason, they've taken different things from them because of largely things that maybe I've not been aware of or things that they've experienced that have shaped them. I've just been incredibly fortunate um, in not just what I was born with in terms of the way I see the world, but also Mm. that the series of things that have been formative for me aren't the negative things because Mm -hmm. there have definitely been negative things in my life, but for whatever reason, they haven't shaped me, the positive Mm. things have. But how do you maintain that mindset? Um, I think it's constantly trying things and and being being a servant to the process, mm-hmm. recognizing that failure in the short term isn't failure in the long term, mm-hmm. um, and 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 being proven right time and again. Um, 
I recognize how fortunate I am to, to want to keep going, even if something quote unquote doesn't quite work out. And that isn't something that everybody has. So for me, it's process. Uh, I'm, I'm fortunate to have three decades in entertainment, but, uh, and, and where I really feel that on a regular basis at this point is that stepping into this new lane as a, a, a behind the camera and someone who creates their own work, I've had a lot of no's, but it hasn't crushed me. It hasn't, you know, uh, taken my ambition away. If anything, it's just made me more determined to learn more. And it's made me more hungry for information. And it's made me want to be better at the thing that I want to do for the rest of my life. And as a result, my work ethic is, as it's always been, unhealthy at times. Uh, and what that's led to is an incredible amount of opportunity. And I know and I can feel the uh, critique coming uh, in future years from my peers who might say it's been easier for me because of the doors that open because of what I've done prior to being in film. Mm. But those doors that open too soon can be more of a hindrance than doors that open at the right time when you're ready. Because I've sat down with, I'll never forget, I met Edgar Wright in a Starbucks on Sunset after I'd written my first ever screenplay, mm -hmm. which was horrendous. And he didn't know who I was. He didn't know anything about my life in front of camera. And I was just personable and silly and self-deprecating. And he liked me and he took my email and I sent him this awful script and he gave me notes. And I then, and he gave me Naira Park's email address and I sent it to Naira Park and she said it was terrible and I wasn't ready. And they were both right. And that could have ended my career. That could have mm -hmm. killed things in the eyes of two incredibly uh, important people in British filmmaking. Mm -hmm. But it didn't because what they said taught me so much about what I need to then do. So that attitude of willing to fail is, I think, a large part as to why I found uh, the levels of success that I have in different areas. So if we like come on to that failure part, right? It can be, it can be hard to fail. It can feel like a massive blow to someone's self-esteem. How have you not let that affect you? How's that not, have you not let that hit your self-esteem? <laughs> because I failed so much. <laughs> What's your biggest failure? Oh my God. Uh, look, when you're, when you're a young actor and you're doing improvisation in front of 50 other people in your class, when you say a joke that doesn't land, you know in the room. When you forget your lines on stage in a play, you know in the room you're a failure. <laughs> you feel it. <laughs> Uh, when I was 13, I did stand up at the comedy store, right? This is something that God, I've never really brave. Absolutely. I, well, stupid is what I was because I was a kid and Jonathan Ross was the host and he roasted me afterwards for the jokes that didn't land, but he also pat me on the back for the jokes that were funny. And I was this little 13-year-old thinking I was Eddie Murphy. And to have those moments of failure, to bomb in front of a crowd, to, 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 to act in front of a live audience and let yourself down teaches you failure but mm -hmm. it also makes those moments when you get a stand innovation so sweet so I've, I've i've just got better at failing i think that's what 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 has become uh, a, a real secret ingredient can you think about one of your moments that's hit you that have hit you the most i mean i can imagine 13 years of age being on a comedy store and getting slated is, is pretty tough but <laughs> through your adult life is there something which really stands out to you at the top of your mind surrounding this? Definitely, uh, relationships without a doubt. I think on a personal level, like to, to have things consistently go well professionally, 
but then to personally really want a family and to really want to uh, be in a relationship and not get it. And then being an unsuccessful, like dating someone and to, for it to not to work out, it really makes you look at yourself and makes you recognize what your flaws actually are and the importance of your home life and how much you're neglecting it. Um, to be honest with you, that's like a, a big thing for me and a big thought um, that I have. Again, a lot of that is centered around this being 40 thing and it doesn't scare me. If anything, mm. I'm quite accepting of it. And that is just knowing that I've given so much of myself uh, professionally, but not personally. Mm -hmm. I have beautiful and phenomenal platonic relationships. I'm incredibly lucky with the friendships that I have, but there is a reason that I'm single and I don't have children. Mm -hmm. And I take ownership of that. And that is something that I'm working on because I have been a crap boyfriend. I have done and made stupid mistakes. And learning from those mistakes, I think, is a large part of what I think will make me better in that corner mm -hmm. of my life moving forward so like coming on to the relationship side you send your single man women listening reggie single <laughs> pop that on there for you what what are you looking for in a relationship i mean self-actualization was one thing that you 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 you, you mentioned earlier on when we were talking about yeah. success mm -hmm. but for you what is it that that stands out because as you as you learn more about yourself and who you are you start also realizing actually who you need and, and what's going to work for you. So yeah. what are you, what are you looking for? What is it that you kind of look back and go, actually, this maybe wasn't right. And this is what I need. I wanted to jump on in and take a moment to thank you for listening to the Live Well, Be Well show. It brings me so much joy to hear how stories on this podcast have helped you get the most out of life. And it's my mission to help even more people do the same. To achieve this, I need you to help me grow this show. So please share the link with a friend or maybe even drop it into the group chat. Well, uh, for a long time, it was perfection, whatever that means, because mm -hmm. definitely in my 20s, I was perfect as far as I was concerned. Obviously, I didn't, I wasn't carrying any trauma and didn't have any issues. And then you get a therapist <laughs> and then you go, Oh, that's why I do that. Oh, I really hurt that person. Oh, wow. Uh, so 10 years into therapy, mm -hmm. uh, you learn a hell of a lot about yourself and what you're getting wrong and what you could get right. And the truth is, it's meeting someone who is very much aware of the journey and uh, self-aware enough to recognize that they're on the journey themselves and that mm. you never attain perfection and that you never are finished it's work that is ongoing. And mm -hmm. that is something that I look for in my uh, 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 platonic relationships. And I'm also looking for that in my uh, romantic relationships. And I think um, parity is a, the easiest word that, that um, comes to mind because I think it's really easy to um, be in a situation where there is a distance that you can pretend to yourself will close. Mm. Um, and it just doesn't, it just doesn't. I'm old enough now to have watched so many friends get into relationships and get married and have children and to have been in that for five to 10 years and sometimes longer. And the play-by-play -play was called at the wedding. Uh, the play-by-play -play was called after the second date and being willing to be honest enough with yourself in knowing that there isn't parity in a relationship is really hard mm -hmm. because so many of us go into relationships with hope as the, uh, the loudest noise. 
and uh, hoping that someone will become something that they aren't isn't enough. You know, I think parity in your journey is an amazing start point. And mm. that for me is, is if I'm going to boil it down, it's that it's meeting someone that isn't doing exactly what I do and earning exactly as much as I earn and, and has the same history as me. That's ridiculous. What I'm looking mm. for is somebody that's in the same place on their journey, whatever that journey might be. Mm-hmm. It's parity. You mentioned something there about with, with parity when it doesn't work. And it made me just think of a moment through my past relationships of ones that haven't worked. And I remember, you know, this is when I was going to therapy and I still go to therapy now. I mean, I've been going since the age of 20 because when I lived in New York, everyone had a therapist. So, you know, kind of yes, that was the right thing so. to do. And yeah. I remember kind of just saying to my dad, like, why am I so distraught about this? And he actually said something really profound to me. And he said, it's because you feel like a failure. Hmm. And it, it really resonated with me. I was like, am I devastated on this relationship or am I devastated because I feel like I failed in this relationship? Yeah. And that to me really stuck with me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's something I think that when I was talking about failure a minute ago, it's one of those things that we never want to actually say, maybe this isn't right because we feel like we failed. How has therapy helped you? Because you're really open about it, which is amazing. And I think so many men don't talk, one, to even their friends about it, let alone even feeling that they can get to therapy. Yeah, I, I, I say this all the time. I'm very lucky in the friendships that I have. Um, we, as a group of friends, um, are all thankfully self-aware enough to know that our little chosen family is incredibly important and massively can help move us all forward. So. I love my friends and they are uh, amazing uh, as a group of people to go to, but you can't beat a professional and you can't beat someone who isn't uh, emotionally connected to you. And um, one of the best things that my, uh, my therapist has taught me is this idea of getting to know your shadow, mm. which I've spoken about quite a bit. And you, you referenced that your shadow self um, being comfortable with me at my worst has made me understand how not to be my worst as much as I have been. And, failure is a a really important lesson as a creative but i think as a a human being as somebody who aspires to create little human beings and be responsible for them understanding you at your worst is a major part of that and i've still got a lot of work to do because you Mm. know i'm not by any means pretending that i'm a saint and that i always get it right i'm sure that there's people that will say that i've hurt them in recent years and that certainly isn't something that is intended, but it doesn't negate the fact that you're still capable of doing that. Mm-hmm. So um, knowing your shadow is something that has really changed my role in, in in relationships and something that has been incredibly uncomfortable, but it's a process I'm comfortable with. Mm-hmm. What was the moment when you first went to therapy? What was that moment where you were like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go and speak to somebody about this? Um, I actually put something on my Instagram a little while ago, and it's funny that I put this on Instagram because it's such a huge part of me and I'm quite a private person and I don't really share much on Instagram anymore. I rarely use it today. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Usually it's contractual (laughs) (laughs) at this this point. Um, So, uh, yeah, I'm not really on there. And that isn't because, you know, I, I think I'm better than anyone that uses it. It just doesn't really work for me and where I am mm. in my life. I, mm. I'm far too private for it, I think. But there was a post that I put up that was taken from my first ever therapy session. 
And it was with my first therapist who I, I no longer am with, but um, he said that, look, in every session that we have, we're going to touch on one of three things, who you're with, where you live and what you do. And if you're able to get two out of three of those things right at any one time, you're going to be in a good place. And what I want to do is get you to where all three of those things are flying. And that was just like the most lovely, logical, truncated way of delivering what the process will dive into and uh, how I could at least measure where I am at any one time on my own. Mm -hmm. And um, it's, it's funny because even though things didn't work out with myself and that therapist for a number of reasons, um, you sort of get to a place where you are still able to draw from some of those tools. Mm -hmm. And that as a tool has been amazing for me as a yardstick in those moments where I'm like, oh shit, I feel really rubbish. And then you ask yourself, what's going on with home? What's going on with work? What's going on in your relationship? And you go, oh crap, I'm zero for three mm -hmm. <laughs> or I'm one for three. And then it just sort of starts to make you think, okay, these are the things I really need to work on at this point. Mm. I think it's one of those things in therapy. I don't know if, if this has helped you, but it's actually understanding how you speak about your emotions because we have over 250 emotions, but what research shows is that we only really know three, sadness, <laughs> happy, and anger. So like, I just know from, from friends or, or from patients or just kind of from day to day, people really struggle to actually articulate how they're feeling. That causes frustration, that causes people to shut off. And I think one of those things that therapy does to you, it kind of helps you really try and distinguish how you're feeling and describe yourself emotionally. Is that something that you relate to when I say that and how you can understand the emotions that you're feeling? Because I think a lot of the times when we are triggered, we can just see red and we can find it very hard to take a step back and actually self-reflect in that moment. It's really hard. Yeah. I, I, as I say, like, um, uh, the more, the older I become, the more I appreciate how much luck has played a part in my, my, my development, my journey mm. as, a, as a human being. And, um, documentaries taught me more about me than I, I thought they would. Mm. Uh, and I, for the longest time would go into films, uh, having already decided who the contributors were in my mind and what I was going to get from those conversations. Um, and in being challenged by certain people <clears throat> and then having a camera put in your face and your director saying, tell us how you feel. Um, you are, in a professional capacity being paid to articulate yourself emotionally mm. and getting better at that is something that I had to do, which massively helped me in my personal life. Mm -hmm. So to be in a situation where, uh, you're being confronted by racists in Russia and you want to go to anger, but you have to work through it and describe not only your feelings, but why you think they are the way that they are is like, high level therapy shit. hundred <laughs> mm -hmm. percent. So, it's not about you at that point, right? It's not about you. And nothing is about you. It's always comes back to that glorious thing. It's not about you. And um yeah, for 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 me to have to do that on camera time and again, <clears throat> you sort of get into the state where you're constantly recognizing the importance of empathy for other people mm. and their why and also their journey to the place that you find them mm. uh, and being kind to yourself uh 
in terms of the mistakes that you make and the decisions that you make uh, for better or for worse allows you to be so much kinder to others. Mm-hmm. And um, in documentary making, having that empathy, being kind to people at their worst uh, and articulating that and finding a way to take from the heart and the head and literally put it out there into the world just gives you a greater understanding of self and also the person that screams at you in traffic on the way home from that shoot. And you go, oh, okay, cool. You, 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 this, this is a moment where um, I'm going to talk to my therapist and they're going to give me a pat on the back. They're going to let me allow me to take a sweet from the bowl for that one. <laughs> I mean, listening to you and then also just it came into mind when you said earlier, I've never been drunk. I've never done drugs. And well, I don't have any semblance at all. This must help with your mindset around, you know, being way more grounded because you all have those days and I have those days maybe when I've had a glass of wine the next day, that evening, and I wake up the next day and I feel quite groggy. Like, what is your decision to have never touched those things? Because I can imagine also being a Radio 1 DJ and being at Brits and doing all these things. You're surrounded by alcohol and temptation and the cool crowds and all of that stuff. How did you decide to never go down there? And and even just the phrase of never getting drunk? Well, the cool crowds aren't cool. I know. That's the short short version of it. And as a a kid, you learn that very quickly. Uh, Being like, you know, not even being 10 and being at some, being on an on-location shoot somewhere in the UK or abroad. And, you know, we're talking about the 90s here where where all the late 80s, early 90s, well, the early 90s, sorry, where, you know, drugs were everywhere in television. Mm-hmm. And people are acting like absolute idiots. And you just go, I don't want to be that. When people are getting pissed at rap parties and being idiots, you just I don't want to be that. Mm-hmm. Also, you know, going back to our earlier conversation about my mum, outside of the talk and her sort of briefing me on the realities of what it means to not just be, uh, a, a young black man in the world, but also a young black man in the workplace. Um, I was taught from a very early age, the rules are different for me. You know, if I mess up once, I might be treated slightly different to my quote unquote friends. <clears throat> and also, um, it's easy to neglect the fact that my formative years were happening at the time that I had responsibilities in a job. So my teens, uh, I was on camera, I was say I was I was 16 I was on Grange Hill but I was also going to college at the same time and I was on pirate radio so you're in nightclubs you're DJing you're on pirate radio which is illegal um but then you have to get up and go and be at Elstree Studios to shoot a scene for Grange Hill right and if you get caught smoking the weed or if you get uh caught you know selling the drugs or selling the Charlie or whatever to your actor mates, which a lot of my actor friends did. A lot of them were dealer actors. Um, <laughs> because if you weren't working, you know, you've got to find a way. Um, if, if you get caught, this all ends. And um, as a kid, like you have to get, uh, you have to get the okay from your school to not be uh, at school to go and perform. Mm-hmm. So if you fall out of favor with your teachers, if you're getting in trouble, if you get caught having a drink down the graveyard at lunchtime, like a lot of your pals are doing with white lightning, <laughs> um, it's a wrap. WKD you. was our one. WKD, two dogs, whatever it is. If you're doing any of that stuff, you're drinking a bottle of hooch on the weekend with your pals, it's a wrap for you. It's over. 
So mm. having that at home from my mum, mm. seeing people act like idiots at work because mm. of it, and also just not being drawn to that, mm. and also like defining my own cool crowd. Like I, I, I never wanted to be part of the quote unquote cool crowd. I never mm. wanted to be part of the thing that I was being told was cool. I was drawn to my own cool crowd. And as mm. a result, I feel like I've built my own. My friends are my cool crowd now and I love them and they're weirdos and it's brilliant. <laughs> I know, but it sounds so profound to think of that at eight years of age, you know? And I do think, you know, so much of being in the cool crowd is just what we conform to in society. I mean, I think I tried so hard to be in that cool crowd, but it made me desperately unhappy. But it's that, you know, and having that hindsight when you're really young is unbelievable. Well, yeah, I think... Um, to never have that taste of, I wonder what it tastes like to get drunk, or I wonder what yeah, it's, it's going to be like. It's never been a draw or an attraction because, look, the most joy I've found has been creating things. Mm. And when I look back at different corners of my life and, and moments that I've had in the past, I've created things, I've created things that have brought other people to me and brought other people to my creation, quote unquote. Uh, and that has given me all the cosign that I've needed that I'm on the right track. Mm -hmm. So at one point I had a really huge blog that was having hundreds of thousands of eyeballs a day. I had 15 or 20 different writers that were all in entertainment and music and the arts. Uh, and I was in my early twenties and people were coming to me because of the world that I created. At one point I had a really successful uh, club night that was a secret party that moved around every time we threw it. And there would be like, when it would be announced where we were gonna do it, there would be 200 people outside trying to get in. And it was me and my best friend at the time DJing all night. And it was like, all of these people are coming here to hear the music that we think is cool. We are bringing people to us. And it's not about uh, superiority. It's about a confidence in self. I don't see the things that I want, so I'm going to create them. And if other people are drawn to this, great. But we're not saying that we're the cool crowd. We're not saying that we're more interested than anyone else. This is we're just us doing what we love. And as a result, for whatever reason, people get drawn to that. And that, for me, is the thing that I double down on. And whatever it is that entertains other people, great. Do your thing. But I'm having a fantastic time over here with my pals and the world that I've built for myself. But that's true, right? Like you are happier and content. And I think that's how I define success, right? It's authenticity and contentment within yourself. And you're yeah. never content unless you're authentic. Absolutely. Because you're playing and another part. Well, people can tell when you're pretending. Mm -hmm. And uh, as somebody who pays my bills uh, through creating an opportunity for people to pretend in front of the camera, mm -hmm. you know when it's fake. You know, you scream, when it's fake, you literally say the word cut, let's do that again. Mm -hmm. And I just don't, I don't, I don't trade in fake. It's not something I'm interested in at all. Reggie, thank you so much for sharing your time and insights with us today and showing up as your true, honest self. If you're eager to hear more from Reggie, we have a special treat just for you. We delve into Reggie's thoughts on how Louis Theroux influenced his storytelling journey, Reggie's most underappreciated documentaries that you should watch, and explore his views on whether AI can compete with the human touch. 
To access this exclusive bonus episode, as well as additional content from me, simply sign up for a subscription using Apple Podcasts. Start your free trial today by clicking Try Free on the Live Well, Be Well show page, available exclusively on Apple Podcasts. One last thing, I've created something just for you. It's a 30-day online course to give your wellbeing journey that extra boost, and it's totally free. Go to sarahannmacklin.com to download it now. There's a link in the description, and I'll see you on the next episode.